Welcome to Commerce Conversations by Commerce Ventures, the podcast where we dive deep on fintech and retail tech with industry experts. I'm Claire Jacobs, head of content and community at Commerce, and today we chat with Betsy Cohen, who's nothing short of a pioneer. After trailblazing her own law firm to a successful career in law, she changed directions to become one of the very first women CEOs and founders of a bank in 1974. And then after selling it, started another, the Bank Corp, that capitalized on selling banking services to tech companies like PayPal. Today, Betsy's focused on investing in fintech as the chairman of Cohen Circle. Dan and Betsy sit down to recall her story of resilience and innovation. Listen in. Betsy, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm excited to get to chat with you and ask you some questions. So thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Dan, for inviting me. So you and I have known each other a while. Uh, I'm going to guess 15 years if I had to put a number to it, but there's still a lot I don't know about your background and, and, and some obviously I do, but would be great for other people to get to know about it. If you wouldn't mind sharing your origin story, and maybe just could start at the beginning. Sure. The beginning was a long time ago. I was uh, born in Philadelphia. My father was a physician and my mother was a social worker. So I was into servicing as a <laughs> as a platform very early on and went on through the public high schools in Philadelphia through Bryn Mawr College and then through a, a chance factor to the Penn Law School. The chance factor was that Actually, at Bryn Mawr, I started out as a math major, thought I was not going to be Einstein, so gave that up. Went on to uh, philosophy, and one day my professor came in and said that we should write a Dear Abby column in the terms that would be used by Immanuel Kant. And I got up out of my seat thinking to myself, is this what I'm going to do with the rest of my life? Let me out. And so I left the room never to return again and happened to run into a, a professor friend of mine who was teaching constitutional law. And I said, help, I'm a senior. <laughs> what am I going to do? And he said, come into my office. You're going to fill out a, a, an application for the Penn Law School. And so that was my very thoughtful approach to getting into law school, which I did. And arrived there in the fall of 1963 with five other women out of a class of 200. Wow. So things have changed a bit, uh, not entirely, but a bit, and moved through a successful series of milestones, becoming the first woman to be the uh, articles editor of the Law Review and et cetera, et cetera. Went on to clerk. But before I clerked for a judge, I had an opportunity to work for a law firm, prestigious law firm in Philadelphia, where I was the first woman that they had ever hired. And this was during a summer in between my second and third years. At the end of the summer, where I thought I had done a fantastic job, the senior partner came to me and he said, generally at this point, we would offer you uh, a full-time uh, position. But I have to tell you that my senior partner said he's not ready to have a woman as a professional colleague. No way. I kid you not. And I was so stunned that I said to him, in what really has stuck with me, I think this is your loss. 
And I walked out of the room and vowed never to work for anybody again. I would only do things that I could control or that were of my making. And that was a great part of of what motivated me to look at the entrepreneurial role. Because as I shared with you, I came from a family that was primarily academicians, doctors, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so it reaffirmed the fact that maybe I didn't belong in that family or that this was an opportunity that just had not been considered and that I thought that I could move forward with. And so I did. And my husband, Ed, and I, who met in law school, formed a law firm together with others who were on the law review with us. He was a year ahead of me. And went on to do the kind of law that really taught me a lot and gave me the basis for what I did over the next many, many years for other people, recognizing pretty quickly that I would make a better client than a lawyer. <laughs> that's, that's super interesting. I, it, you know, my, my next question was going to be about role models, inspirations. I mean, obviously, there's a sort of negative you know, kind of inspiration that that, <laughs> that individual created right. for you. Um, were there, as you were becoming a, an entrepreneur and somebody who'd own their own destiny and their own business, were there people that you looked up to who were role models or, or who had done that before that you sort of learned from along the way? I'll tell you the truth. I didn't know enough to know that there should be role models. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just made it up as I went along. I suppose if you're a pioneer um, and, you know, from everything I know and what you've just said too, it's, you sort of had to be a pioneer just given the times. No choice. <laughs> there weren't that many people you could you could look to who had done something that you're trying to do. So right. that's interesting. How did you get from law firm to banking? I taught for a couple of years. And what okay. I taught was all of the uh, subjects that had numbers in them. So it was uh, banking and insurance and all the rest of the antitrust all of those elements. So I came with a good background and as a math major and really a quanted heart, I came with a good disposition to be doing what I'm doing and have done. Can you remind me the the sequence of steps that brought you into being an operator in banking? Sure. After I clerked, I went to teach, uh, as I described for a couple of years, and became, it was right around 1970 when the Bank Holding Company Act of 1970 was being passed. So I had an opportunity since I was the first one through the door to become the expert in that field. And it seemed very comfortable to me. And therefore, in the early 70s, maybe 72, 73, when there was a an onslaught of applications for banks to be focused on women, I decided that although that was not exactly my thing, and since I was already known to the Pennsylvania banking department through my representation of others, and since the business plan that I was putting forward was supportive of women, but not as woman-focused as some of the others, that I had a decent chance. Pennsylvania had not uh, granted a a bank charter, new bank charter in 
uh, 10 or 12 years. But undaunted, I figured it was time. And so I went to the head of the department and to the Federal Reserve, whose uh, members I knew well in, in the Pennsylvania area. And I made the application. It was granted. Wow. And, and that, that first bank was, was that Jefferson? That first bank was Jefferson. Yeah. You and I met um, when you were running the Bancorp Bank. Right. What was the inspiration for the Bancorp Bank? I mean, I, I, in my head, I sort of have a, you know, kind of, I think of it as the bank, you know, kind of that pioneered fintech innovation. So I definitely want to come back to that. But what, what sort of led to the creation? Well, I, I had the opportunity to execute a bloodless coup in another bank uh, my husband was running. And I could tell he just wasn't doing the job that I would have wanted to do. That bank was located in Chevy Chase in Maryland and in uh, various of the Maryland suburbs. And so I suggested nicely to him, uh, since we're still married after all this time, that perhaps I could relieve him of the travel responsibilities (laughs) 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 and uh, certainly run that institution, which I did in parallel with Jefferson. Wow. I then sold that company in the mid-80s, continued with Jefferson, but I could really see that both because I'm technologically oriented and because I'm I'm an observer and always watching for what I call negative space, little pieces of white space here or there in the other place, I could tell that the banking experience that we were giving to customers might not be the one that they would be using in the late 90s, early 2000s, because there was just the percolation as customers began to adopt the use of uh, computers, first in the office and then beginning to do it uh, on a personal basis. The technology was responding and those two elements were crossing. So in about the mid 90s, I really sat back and thought, what will the next 10 years look like? And concluding that they were not going to look like the last 10 years, I uh, tried to develop a model in my mind for how one could, through the banking system, since that's what I knew, service this emerging market of financial technology companies that needed banks to provide a wrapper of some sort. I mean, obviously very prescient, um, especially back then, but, you know, in my mind, and, and, and again, maybe other people view it differently, but in my mind, I always think about the bank corp, you know, kind of pioneering this, you know, kind of the, the sponsor it, it did. banking industry. It, it absolutely did. And you're absolutely right. And it became the, and is remains today. Uh, responsive to and in partnership with over a thousand fintech uh, companies. Well, obviously, there was there was sort of identifying that opportunity, you know, kind of uh, to, to to pioneer that space, and then there's you know, kind of it, by definition supporting a bunch of I guess challenging models where you don't like <laughs> startup companies that you know kind of you don't know if they're going to be successful or they're going to fail, like. Any right. any insights about how you were able to build what is it a traditional institution a bank 
that you know where risk is the critical thing to manage, but at the same time supporting innovation. I feel like this is something that a lot of people still struggle with. I think it is something to be struggled with, uh, and it's not an easy path to take. And the the landscape changes all the time, and the risks change all the time. Consumers, small businesses, large businesses, hackers become more sophisticated. Technology has to respond, but it doesn't always respond quickly enough. So all of those elements are elements that are ongoing. There's no end to the uh, cycle uh, because one feeds on the other. Yep. That make that makes sense, and you know, kind of in the, I guess in the in the phase of the, your career, you know, kind of focused on that pioneering of, of sponsor banking. Any particular, you know, kind of particularly fun experiences or or, or companies that you got to work with that st- stand out to you? Well, I, I I try not to mention individual names, but you know, we saw uh, many companies. Well, we started actually with a name that I will pull out. Uh, and, and that's PayPal. We thought as long as we're starting, might as well start big. And they were small compared to what they are today, but we were like an ant on an elephant, but pretty smart guys. And so we were able to help them work through some of the regulatory issues that they were facing at that time because the regulators just didn't know anything about this stuff. And that's not the best place to be. So. Uh, having helped them, we developed a good relationship, which the Bad Corp sustains even to today. So some 20 some years later, we continue to do Venmo and a lot of the other uh, applications that uh, PayPal has. But added to those to those many more uh, startups, we were a little bit too early. The companies we were looking at we're definitely too early. <laughs> but I, can name, I can name one or two of those that we worked on together. <laughs> right. Uh, but by maybe 2003 to 2005, the field began to sort itself out. People were learning from one another. A company would expand miraculously from nothing to 100, you know, in a minute, matter of minutes. But then they would find that they were engaged in part of the cycle where they couldn't get additional funding or where the unit economics were just ridiculous because there were no unit economics. So a lot of the attention that we paid as we went along was, I think, twofold. One to business model, and I am just a bear in terms of looking at the business model and pulling it apart and understanding the path to profitability, but secondly, to the quality of the uh, executives, because this financial technology companies are highly dependent upon execution and highly dependent upon the executive team to be able to pivot when the market shifts and finding as open uh, a business model as possible which will endure some tinkering with to meet current needs, you know, is really what we're looking for. We're looking for people who can grow with the company that they can grow. The technology platforms, although very difficult to develop, 
you know, can be one could say can be done by a number of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a skill set and a critical skill set. But the understanding of how that fits into the greater business model is yet another piece of that puzzle. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. I I think part of my job is to study and understand business models and then figure out how they can lead to enterprise value. Um, So I feel like I'm constantly learning about that and, you know, reinforcing or disconfirming things um, that you knew before. Speaking of new business models and new business opportunities, another area I think about you as being a a pioneer and correct me if I'm getting this wrong is, is the SPAC area. And, um, (laughs) I think the first time I ever heard the term SPAC, it was, you know, kind of either from you or one of your colleagues. Why were you an expert in SPACs? I mean, can just, can you remind me why? Sure. Uh, absolutely. Remember, I had had a Petri dish for 15 years as the CEO of Bancorp. Uh, and in my Petri dish were hundreds of little companies. And so I could really understand, getting back to the business model, what companies were both in need of and ready for the public markets. And so when I stepped down at the end of 2014 and retired for my eight days of retirement, you know, I I really realized, and I, I can't take credit for this alone. Daniel, who's my son and my partner, business partner, was very helpful in recognizing that I would be a disaster. One, I would be a disaster if I weren't working, which he didn't want to have to deal with. But secondly, I could be a helpful partner. And together, we really did understand, because he was always involved in the Bancorp, we really did understand that the companies that had been begun in between 2005 and maybe 2008, were now internally, from a corporate governance point of view, reporting point of view, knowledge point of view, and market fit, were ready to take the next step because they could benefit from having a a public currency. Or in the case of lenders, they could have better access to warehouse lines or whatever the particular need was, the public markets would serve them well. So we began that really in 2014-15. In the last few years, I know you've been investing in private growing startups, a lot of them in the fintech space. What, you know, after the experience of running companies that that you have founded, you've been a pioneer, and then you know, the sort of SPAC experience, what led you to want to invest, to be on the investor side and focus on fintech? I think that one, fintech was something we do. And you have to know what you know and what you don't know. But secondly, uh, we could see that the valuations were being driven to a point where it just didn't make sense anymore in the public markets. Uh, So we thought we would look down that value chain. And that may have been where, you know, with COVID, I hardly know what year it is, but I'd have to say that that was in the 2000, mid 2020, maybe, you know, the end of 2020. Um, 
And, and so we recognized that there were companies that were in earlier stages, not ready, because we saw hundreds of companies that were not ready to be public companies. But that didn't mean that they didn't have value. And so once the market began to join with us in this recognition, we were able to go back to that group of companies and have serious and sensible discussions about valuation uh, and about business model and about unit economics and about all the things that matter in a profitable company and sort out the value pieces. We did that with, but, and I guess another helpful thing was that the SPAC uh, model is one from a, uh, a sponsor point of view. SPAC model is one in which you, unlike the fund model, in which you go in, you understand the company and you have an exit that's very visible. The vesting you're doing, what's the target stage? What is the target profile that you're looking for typically? Well, we have a couple of funds that we're uh, incubating. One is in the fintech area and one is, is a women-led fund in the impact area with a whole different team, our primary team, but with added additive people to it. Uh, but in both of those cases, the target is really that B round because we're not smart enough to do the A round generally. I don't know if that's, I, I'm pretty sure that's not the the truth, but I, I think focus uh, matters a ton. And so it, it seems like you've figured out a focus that works well with your, your approach. Well, I think it works well for us and it allows us actually to look at some A rounds that people are calling B rounds, but that are really A rounds in terms of the development of the company. And to be helpful, we not only bring money to the table, but we bring a ton of advice and expertise in a yeah. non-combative way. You you mentioned um, the investing team focused on women-led businesses. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, I'm not sure if you're sharing details about that yet, but would love to hear a little bit more about you know kind of what prompted that. I mean, I think I could guess, but would love to hear just a little bit more about the the why and then what you hope happens there. Sure. It it's not it's not so much women led businesses as it is women who are the investors investors and partners we saw the opportunity among a group of women who had had enormously diverse experience one was a nuclear engineer by training one had run big government agencies internationally and we were able to bring together a group uh, that could focus on both the importance of a, of a particular product to an underserved group, but also had global and scientific expertise. So it's a very exciting project and we're looking forward to it. Awesome. I, sometimes it's it's difficult, you know, over the course of months or even a few years to see progress. But, you know, we started off our discussion talking about the challenge you faced professionally at the outset of your career in, in the law field. 
but just you know generally we're on this journey as a society certainly in, in the united states are we making progress do you feel like we're making progress i do think we're making progress and maybe more in the last five years than in the previous 10 because uh, there's a new generation that's looking at these issues but i have to say i am continually surprised at the lack of progress that's made in certain pockets. I mean, it's just extraordinary to me. It just shows the depth of the human condition. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, maybe just in, the, in, in that spirit of, of progress and, you know, kind of helping others who are on their journey, any advice, you know, kind of words of wisdom or advice that you could share with anybody. It could be founders, it could be women professionals, but, you know, kind of just people who are on their journey and, you know, are maybe listening to this and key insights that you think they should take away. Listen to your own voice. Do what it is that you really not only know something about, but really have a passion for and enjoyment in. And don't be afraid of being different. David Rubenstein said this in an interview, and I, it stuck with me, asked what his most valuable asset was in going, making the journey from the law to Carlisle. And he said it was being the son of immigrant parents, of thinking about himself as the other. And women have that advantage today. They still have that advantage and should really understand that they can look at things together with everyone else and be in a collegial situation, but maybe they can also have insights that yep. are not apparent. I love that. And that's, that is a great, great benefit. Well, thank, thank you for sharing that. Also, just thank you for the time you spent here today with us. And more importantly, thank you for sure. your partnership over many years. We've gotten to work together. and Oh, well, we, we treasure our working with you. And you were part of our and remain part of our learning experience because we see what you do. And we're really uh, very much impressed by it. Thank you for saying that. Um, vice versa. That's all for this episode of Commerce Conversations. If you want to keep up to date with cutting-edge themes and opinions in the commerce universe, you can follow us on Twitter at CommerceVC, find more of our content on Medium at the same handle, and subscribe to our newsletter on our website, commerce.vc. Thanks for listening.